you know, in my career as a sole agent, I had my head down for 17 years, you know, working hard in the trenches, seven days a week, did a ton of business, had a lot to be proud of. You know, I think I did, you know, 500 plus sales on my own. But coming to Compass and joining Curator was when I lifted my head up and realized that there were other agents in other places doing great things. You're listening to The Real Estate Sessions. I'm your host, Bill Risser, with Fidelity National Title, Tampa District. Thanks for tuning in as we uncover the stories of leaders in our industry. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 199 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. We are now in year five of uh, the Real Estate Sessions. And so thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you very much for telling a friend. Uh, it's I love what I do. And it's really just talking to people that are doing cool things in the world of real estate. This this week's guest, definitely no exception. He is uh, doing some really neat stuff. I'm going to interview today Charles Cherney. Charles is a realtor with Compass Realty. He's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I've got a ton of questions about Cambridge. Uh, but, but first, let's welcome welcome him to the show. Charles, how are you doing? Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's a real treat to be here. Love your podcast. And it's uh, it's a it's an honor to be on your show. Charles, we have a mutual friend, Anthony Malafronte. You know Anthony, right? I do, through the Curator family. Absolutely. And so uh, Anthony's, I told him I was going to be talking to you this week. And I want to ask you real quick a, a question that Anthony brought to my attention. That is, he said you're quite the cinephile. And and he said, <laughs> Bill, when I say cinephile, I, don't, I only know 10% of the movies he's talking about. So tell me a little bit. What does that mean, Charles? What is Anthony trying to tell me? I think he's just saying that I have a love for world cinema. And when I talk about watching a movie, it's not typically a a new film from Hollywood, but something that you'd find on the Criterion Channel or at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square or at the Harvard Film Archive. I've just, from college, enjoyed some of the great films to be found in the world, not just here in the states, uh, states, but across the globe, whether it's from France or Russia or whatever country it might be that's delivering some really powerful work of film. So yeah. that's always been a love of mine. And uh, in today's modern world with streaming, it's easy to uh, nourish that love. Yeah, no kidding. I, I know my wife is a, a huge movie buff, way bigger than I am. Tends to be, uh, I can't, you, I can't trip up any any older movie that was filmed here in the states. But when you start talking about foreign films, you know, it seems like we're limited to just what the Academy offers up every, um, you know, year, uh, and that's our own fault. I mean, we should probably be out there more. So I might even, you know, hit you up after the show for two or three films we must watch. That would be great. All right. Absolutely. Cool. Good. You live and work in Cambridge, but I don't think you were born there. You're not a native of Massachusetts, right? No, I grew up in suburban Detroit, living in a series of suburbs surrounding the city of. And so my upbringing was in the Detroit area. And what was that What was that draw of Harvard? I mean, obviously, <laughs> when you talk Harvard, Yale, you talk about these schools. Um, what, was, uh, what was a young Charles thinking of, of becoming and doing with his Harvard degree? Sure thing. So I grew up in a different time and place before the internet. I am 52 and it's hard to imagine once upon a time we didn't have the internet, but even when I was in high school, it was not 
a part of our daily life. And I only became aware of Harvard when my brother, 14 months my senior and two grades ahead of me, matriculated and started at Harvard. And I came to see him and discovered Cambridge and Harvard Square and Harvard University just through my brother having started to go to school there. So it became apparent to me from the moment I first set eyes on Harvard Square in the mid-1980s that I wanted to follow in my brother's wake and find my way there. And what was drawing me was just the quality of life. I grew up in suburban Detroit where you needed a car to get anywhere. And before you were 16, that meant you went nowhere. And even when you got a license, you didn't have the luxury of going downtown to a thriving metropolis because the Detroit heyday had come and gone after World War II. So, you know, there I was growing up in the post-white flight post-riot 80s, well beyond uh, when the city was flourishing in its its golden moment. So when I got to Cambridge to visit my brother and I saw Harvard Square had a subway stop, then under construction, by the way, and that the city had a vitality and pedestrians and people on bicycle and walking around and there were bookstores and a lively center, it just drew me right away as what I'd always hoped for and never found in my own experience, no fault of anyone's in particular, but just a matter of circumstance of time and place growing up as I did in suburban Detroit. So I was drawn as much to the quality of life in Harvard Square and Cambridge as I was to the university. Now that I've come back as an adult, that's still a big draw. Today I was on my Vespa. It allows me to get around town and to enjoy living here in a way that is very difficult in many car-centric places. A Vespa for a guy who loves foreign films. Yeah. A, a picture is being painted here, Charles. You understand that, right? The stereotype can be true. <laughs> okay. <it can. laughs> that's right. Stereotypes can be true. They're not just stereotypes. Okay. That's, now, now, now I'm in some loop I got to think about there. Okay. Um, so so obviously, what you weren't thinking about becoming a realtor as you headed off to Harvard. What was your uh, What was your... Uh, area of study you're focused on? My ambition, even before I came to Harvard, was to be a prep school uh, teacher, uh, an English teacher. I had that ambition. I attended a very fine prep school outside Detroit, Detroit Country Day, and I had a very strong uh, relationship with the chairman of the English department, and I had a desire to, to be an English teacher. This was the era when Dead Poets Society came out, and uh, I had a very strong connection to my prep school. It felt like a second family to me. And I could imagine myself thriving as a teacher in such an environment. So I brought that dream with me to Harvard. And in fact, I pursued it upon graduation. I became a high school English and history teacher. Talk about that. Where where was that in the country? Where Whereabouts? And uh, how long was that uh, your career path? So I started out at the Wheeler School in Providence, Rhode Island, where we otherwise know Brown University is. I was there for a year. And at that point, I decided to accept a position at my alma mater, Detroit Country Day School. And I was there for several years. And then I brought myself back to the greater Boston area by accepting a position at the Brimmer and May School in Chestnut Hill, just the other side of the Charles River. And when I came there, I actually accepted a post as the director of public relations and marketing for the school. So I was sort of making a shift from having been a school teacher to, at that point, I had sort of set my sights on becoming a director of development 
And the first step on that journey is becoming a PR and marketing director. So I landed that post at Brimmer in May. And it's a two-year gig when you take a position of that sort if you're moving up. The next job would be annual fund director. I didn't succeed in securing an annual fund director position, although I was a finalist at several different schools in the Boston area. So having given notice at Brimmer and May as the PR director and not having landed a job as an annual fund director, I was sort of at a crossroads of, well, I'm going to need to do something to be gainfully employed before I, if I do decide to pursue the annual fund director position for the following hiring season uh, that comes around. So I sort of stood back and said, I love people and I love Cambridge and I love architecture and urbanism. So maybe I'll get my real estate license. So I did. And then I talked to the top three offices in town and they all offered me an opportunity easy enough for all of them to do since you're hundred percent commission. <laughs> okay. And uh, I started in September of 99 without previous experience and not really with a network, quite frankly, I just sort of started cold at a top office in Harvard square on my own. And uh, that office, which is no longer, was called Hammond Real Estate. And when I joined it in 99, it was sort of in a heyday that continued for a decade plus during the time that I was there. I ended up staying just under 17 years from 99 in September of 99 through July of 16. So maybe that is 17 years if I do the math. Well, let me, so let me ask you this question. So you're... Here you are, no idea what the world of real estate is, other than maybe buying a home. But you have no idea, and, and here you are going into a, a, a market that's not probably the easiest to, to break into. There are probably a lot of realtors there that have been there a long time. What did what did it look like the first couple of years for you? Was there someone at Hammond that that was you can attribute some of the success, you know, in, as as maybe as a mentor? So um, I was what fortunate like? to join an office that previously had never hired someone without previous experience. And so there were all these heavy hitters, seasoned veterans that I was going to be sitting next to. And this is the era before the Internet. I mean, really, in 99, it really hadn't hit. People still called mm -hmm. the office, mm -hmm. still walked in, still read the paper and called off an ad. And so I would do floor time and I would pick up calls. Um, I'd get the opportunity to ask questions of all these incredible agents sitting around me, many of whom still sit around me to this day at Compass because they made the move like I did. And so, and I had a great manager who was patient and kind and took my questions. So, but I just dug it out of the dirt. You know, I just went to open houses. I studied the inventory. I asked questions. I took every opportunity I could to host an open house for a seasoned veteran that needed to take a weekend off, picked up you know, buyers who were looking for assistance because the seasoned agent didn't want to take them on. So whatever it took, I took the opportunity and made something of it. And I was just lucky to be among all these ama amazing veterans who were patient enough to to answer my questions uh, as they came to me. So it was sort of on the job learning from a great group of colleagues. And it was wow. sort of a golden moment because we only had, I don't know, two dozen agents in the office and everyone was a, a top producer. And so you can imagine, like, I know you love baseball. So, like, imagine showing up on a World Series Yankees team uh, and everyone on the team is someone you know and is going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. And then there's you. Wow. <laughs> that was sort of what it was like. 
Now, Charles, this is, I have to call you out on this. You, you, you gave me the Yankees, not the Red Sox. So <laughs> I, I think that's awesome personally. So <laughs> I'm a fair weather baseball fan. Not, not a right. I, like I like it. I like it. So you, you mentioned, you know, 99. So the Internet's just getting ready to hit, right? The early 2000s was when websites were starting to pop up. You had old timers going, I don't need the web. But you had other people that were looking at them. And so, you know, 20 years ago, were you seeing there going, yeah, this is going to have potential? Were you an early adopter of uh, that technology? I was an early adopter. And yeah. I had a website and I started a blog and I had an IDX feed. And I was doing all these things in that era when it was just taking root. So I was an early adopter. I've gone through a variety of websites with a number of different vendors. And I've been in that game right from the beginning. But I can still remember like it was yesterday actually generating business through internet contact in that time frame, year 2000, 2001. You know, I think my more experienced colleagues coming from an older school of real estate just thought I was talking out of the top of my hat, that I was making that up. (laughs) Yeah, if you think about it, if you were blogging in 2001, two or three, there was no competition and, and organic search results were a real thing, right? Yeah. You could argue in 2019, there's not much in the sense that there's not many people committed to writing quality blogs and delivering great content on a regular basis. So there's not even a whole lot of competition today. There is in the larger sense of there's a lot more out there, but there's just not a whole lot in anyone's market that you can turn to and say, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. So what I'm going to call this just a, a huge advantage for you. You you obviously are passionate about writing uh, and there are not, to be brutally honest, there are not many realtors that have that passion. Uh, it's a huge advantage for you, right? I would think it is, but it's interesting. I recently became aware of a real estate coach, Jess Lunevel, L-E-N-O-U-V-E-L, her, her outfits, listings lab. And just this past week, she posted on um, her Facebook page that it's a misconception that people have that you have to be a great writer to write a good blog. You don't, you can be writing on a fifth or sixth grade level. In fact, that might even be better for the majority of people Mm -hmm. reading in our current world where the attention span is limited. You don't have to be writing like a published writer to find a way to write a valuable blog. And her post really brought that point home to me. So you want to be careful in ans- asking that question, and I want to be careful in answering it because it could drive people to the wrong conclusion. I have the luxury of a lifetime of reading, having been an English teacher, uh, so it comes naturally to me at this point in my life. But it's it's there for the world to to do. It's it's as easy as you and I talking to write a good blog. It's in that natural cadence that most people would prefer to get to know you and to hear what you have to say. Okay. So I'll, so, okay, counselor, I'll rephrase the question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The um, dedication, diligence, the hard work required to be consistent is something that's, I would call uh, a part of your psyche, part of what you did. You don't get out of Harvard and you don't teach at these prep schools without knowing how to be consistent, knowing how to um, work hard. I was, like many people in real estate, hit or miss with my blog for many years. And I know for many people that eventually turns into not hit and miss, but just into miss. But it's interesting. It was when my time at Hammond came to an end in July 2016. 
and I landed without knowing I was going to be in the market to be in a new office, but suddenly was. I landed at Compass in August of 2016, and I said to myself, I'm turning 50 in December of 2016, so maybe my office closing up and selling to a new brand is a blessing in disguise because, you know, the midlife crisis is going to happen <laughs> at some <laughs> point. Maybe they just put it on my calendar. So yeah. when I was suddenly a compass, which, by the way, when I joined in early August of 2016, I think I was the third or fourth broker in the Cambridge office. And now we have 100 and Boston has over 200. So it's grown. Wow. I, I joined this new company, Compass. We're in temporary office quarters uh, above the post office in Harvard Square and its early days. And I realized, though, that, OK, it's a chance to begin again. It's sort of like I looked at, well, I've just completed the first half of my career. It's halftime. I'm going to be turning 50. Now it's the third and fourth quarter, and I'm going to do these next two quarters of the game of my career at Compass. And maybe it's a time for me to take stock of who I am. For my whole career, Bill, I was a single agent, sole proprietor, working alone. And I was doing everything, and I did it all. And even in my last year at Hammond, 2016, I did 50 deals on my own, without an assistant, without a team, just alone. And I did mm. every appointment, from every showing to every smoke inspection, to every appraisal visit, to every closing. I did the entire 50 deals on my own. And so... There I was at Compass. It's August 2016. I'm starting at a new company. I'm sitting at a new desk. I'm realizing it's the beginning of the third quarter. And I said to myself, this is a time for me to begin to think differently, that I owe it to myself to start a team and to pass on some of what I've come to know to people that work for me, that I can mentor and position myself perhaps by their staying with me for the long term pretty well for when I'm at the end of the fourth quarter and I want to pass on my book of business to people that I've been working with for many years. So mm -hmm. I decided at that point to start a team. And uh, what's so interesting is part of that decision led me to go back to looking at Curator. I had known about Jimmy Mackin and Chris Smith, who you know and have interviewed, I think, mm -hmm. for some time when Curator first came out and through their exposure online through Inman and other places. And so I contacted them and they they were there and I decided to start a website with them. And so it launched at the beginning of 2017. I'll never forget it. I started working on the site uh, with Wendy Herndon at Curator in January and we launched on Valentine's Day 2017. So I had a new website with Curator at the beginning of my first full year at Compass and I had my first team member who's still with me, and now I've added two more. So the consistency in blogging, the consistency in creating content, I, I attribute to my connection to Curator because by being exposed suddenly to Chris and Jimmy on a daily, weekly, monthly basis uh, and allowing them to essentially play the roles of mentor for me through what they present on their uh, company's Facebook group and website and through their conferences and through connecting with them in person and by email, I suddenly became the best version of myself. Like I never had been until then. I had my head down. I was working hard. I was on my own. I was successful. But then suddenly in 2017, in my first full year at Compass, now running a team, now connected to Chris and Jimmy, I start to realize the value of creating consistent content. So let's, let's talk about the, that, 
creation of the team. Who was the first uh, and, and what role was the first hire? And you mentioned now you're at uh, sounds like three, four people. What what do you envision that looking like? Yeah, so I I decided after getting incorporated and and creating my team that my team would be a little different than some other teams I am exposed to in my marketplace and that I've met online through my research. I wanted to have three agents on my team, which is in fact what I have now. And I wanted to have agents who were entrepreneurs on my team. I didn't want to have an admin. I didn't want to have a buyer's agent specialist. I wanted to have three people who were independent agents who could both work with buyers and sellers and whose success I could support as a mentor and whose success I could support by presenting lead opportunities to them. So in my team, everyone is responsible for his, well, I say his, my team is made up of three independent women. So each person is responsible for their book of business. They're responsible for following up with their opportunities to list and the buyers that they're seeking to serve. So I am a problem solver. I'm a lead generator. uh, But I give these people on my team the opportunities and then they take care of taking care of themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Let's go a little deeper in that lead gen thing, because I know as a curator client, um, I know that uh, Facebook is a huge part of the uh, the lead generation through the curator um, marketing. But what what does it look like if I was to say to you, for first of all, for your own personal business, because you're you're a a working team leader, you know what percentage of your business today is referral based versus prospecting, and how does that look for the team? It's a great question, and I'm not one of those guests who has tracked you know, where everything's coming from and can answer that question with confidence when asked, as you've just done, right? It's more just a sixth sense. Maybe as I continue to grow forward, I'll do better in terms of tracking where business is coming from. But ever since I adopted a commitment to being online back around 99, 2000, I've been generating each year half my business from online contact. And so in terms of how much of that business that's generated I, sh- I I choose to pursue myself and how much of it I, I choose to share with my team is somewhat situational based on my workload when those opportunities arise. Right now, I'm listing a 36-unit building, new construction in Cambridge, online at InmanCrossing.com. And so that's keeping me pretty busy, as you can imagine. Right. So a lot of the lead opportunities that are coming in right now, I'm just putting out to the three women on my team on a round-robin basis. And they're all happy to receive those leads to service them and sell those people home. So uh, I'd say that, you know, at the 20 year mark in my career, uh, probably half my business is uh, repeat or sphere of influence, if you will. And the other half is online lead generation. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, um, that's a high percentage of new business, a high percentage of prospecting for someone that long in the business. But when you hear your story and the way you, you tell it and with this team coming in, it absolutely makes sense. I want to, I want to ask you about so you have a curator site and, you know, they're uh, they're beautiful, really well done websites. But did, is StoryBrand a part of your website? Are you a follower of that StoryBrand model? So uh, I learned about Donald Miller and building a StoryBrand from Jimmy Mack and one of the co-founders of Curator. Okay. And having learned about him from Jimmy, I did read Donald Miller's book. And then I was so blown away by it that I sat down and read it a second time. And at that point, I decided to revamp 
cambridgerealestate.com, my website, with the sort of Donald Miller framework, which is informed by the notion that the client is the hero and the agent is the guide. Right. And uh, it is informed by storytelling. So, yes, uh, I did become aware of Donald Miller and it made a huge impact on me. In fact, I then decided that my site could be better. So I took his online course and then put my website through another Donald Miller revision. And I think I must have worked on my catchphrase for six months until I couldn't see straight, ultimately landing on what's found on cambridgerealestate.com. I'm here to help you uh, buy the right home and sell for the best price. That's us in a nutshell. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, look, anyone listening, go check out this site. Um, it's 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 really one of the best sites I've seen, Charles. So uh, congratulations on all the hard work. It's definitely, um, it looks beautiful. Let, let you me... know, one thing I would say, Bill, that uh, comes to my mind as I recounted how I joined Curator in 2017 when I was starting a Compass and starting a team is, you know, in my career as a sole agent, I had my head down for 17 years, you know, working hard in the trenches, seven days a week, did a ton of business, had a lot to be proud of. You know, I think I did, you know, 500 plus sales on my own. But coming to Compass and joining Curator was when I lifted my head up and realized that there were other agents in other places doing great things. When I went to my first conference, which was Curator Austin, Texas in 2017, and met all these incredible people like Anthony Malafronte and Judy Weininger and others. And, and then when I started to realize that there were all these other people that I could learn from online, you know, so I picked up on Seth Godin and Chris mm-hmm. Brogan and Gary Vaynerchuk and Bernadette Jiwa and Donald Miller. And then through podcasts like yours, you know, I learned about Joe Rand, you know, so what I'm what I'm expressing here is, is that it turns out to be a real blessing for me to have left the company I was at. I could have stayed there if it had stayed in business and done another 17 years with my head down. But what I've learned is it's a much better experience to have your head up, to be connected to podcasts like your own, to people like Chris and Jimmy, you know, to people like Gary and Bernadette and Seth and Chris Brogan. So having just become part of a family of other agents and people like yourself who are supportive of what agents are doing. I don't know where I was, uh, except working hard with my head down to realize it's a much better way to be being engaged with others who do what we do every day. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, if you think about it, you know, 20 years ago with your head down, you had success. So why would you do anything different? You, you if I kept my head down even more, I'd have more success. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think that's, and now that I look back on it, I, I can't imagine I went that hard that long alone, you know, sure. Of course I had some support along the way everyone does, but I think you're getting the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I got to my first conference and Chris and Jimmy put me on the stage with Judy Weininger and I was looking out at a thousand plus faces, giving a talk and standing next to Judy who was announcing that she was going to have her own brokerage. And I was like, I am so glad I made it to the party, even though I'm a little late. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Charles and the video party. You're embracing video, obviously, at the, I would think at the behest or bequest or the insistence, or um, you're going to help me, you're an English professor, uh, with uh, from Jimmy and Chris, right? Because video is a massive part of their um, success. 
with regard to video, Bill, I'd say, and I think some of your listeners will probably appreciate this, I don't score an A, nor do I score a B. I'm a solid C student when it comes to video. And what do I mean by that? Well, yes, I did finally get around to making some live videos on Facebook Live just about a year and a half, two years ago now, when Jimmy Mackin uh, was encouraging members of the curator family to give it a go. So I thought, okay, here goes nothing. And I am aiming now to be on uh, Facebook Live once a week through a daily CC, which are my initials, a uh, series. So uh, once a week on Facebook Live for five minutes isn't a ton of video, but it's something, and it's, it's a lot more than nothing. Uh, and then when I went to see Gary Vaynerchuk at a conference he hosted in Miami uh, in January of 2017, or 2018, sorry, he talked about pushing yourself to create more content and to do so in video. So I came back to Cambridge from that conference and I decided I'm going to start making uh, a video with the goal of one a month about someone in the community. So I hired a videographer and I started two series, cambridgestories.com and somervillestories.com. So it occurred to me that to create a video a month uh, or 12 a year or over the course of five years, 48 is 48 more than none. And I've taken such joy in creating these videos in these two series to meet some of the people in the Cambridge and Somerville market and to allow them to speak for themselves and to celebrate who they are. So that's been a great series. And it's interesting, Bill. I don't know how I find time for that, but I do. And then it's produced and it's published and it's fantastic. So there's a couple lessons in there. One is you don't have to do video every day to do it. My Facebook Live is weekly. Sometimes I miss. My story series is done by a videographer. Yes, I go and meet the person and post the interview, but then the videographer takes over and magic happens. So I would say to people in the audience, if you, like me, are getting a C or you haven't started, you can start like I have and do a little, which will feel like a lot because you're coming from zero. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I love that. I love that take. Let me ask you about the book reviews. Obviously, you're an avid reader. Uh, I'm going to guess, you know, you could, it wouldn't shock me if you said you, re you read a couple books a week. Let's talk about, first of all, what led you to going, I'm going to start writing reviews on these books and putting them on my website. And then, and and by the way, I'm going to be referring a ton of people <laughs> to there so they can, they can see what you're doing. Yeah, there's a section of CambridgeRealEstate.com, a series of blog posts I've written and I put them in a category that's available on the menu, business books I've read recently. And it's interesting. I think it's just my exposure to Jimmy Mackin, who's a huge reader. I mean, he makes me look like I'm in kindergarten. I think he's like graduate school level uh, in terms of how much he reads, which I think is great because, you know, Jimmy is a self-taught person and further proof, if any is needed, that you don't need to go to Harvard like I did to be worth your weight. He's more than worth his weight. And I just started to notice he was sharing a lot in the curator mastermind group about books he had been reading. And I thought, man, I need to do that. I need to share with some people some of the books I'm reading. So I got to credit Jimmy with the inspiration. Uh, and it's just been a way for me to follow up on my own thoughts when reading a book. Let me give an example. So I learned about Joe Rand from your, your podcast, Bill, as a guest. He was on earlier in 2019. Mm -hmm. And because of learning about him, I picked up his book, How to Be a Great Real Estate Agent. And it was such a fantastic book for me. I felt like if I sat down and wrote a blog post about it, it would do two things. One, it would allow me to 
kind of capture what he had taught me by writing about it. And two, it might encourage other people that visit my website to learn about him and perhaps pursue reading his book. So if that makes any sense, it's been an opportunity for me to kind of get closer by writing about it to what I've read and also share the wealth. So I'm 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 sensing that all those papers that my English teachers made me write in high school, they did that so I would learn better what I was supposed to know. Is that is that was that part of what you were doing? I think maybe. I tried to convince <laughs> many of my students of that. I don't know if they bought it. <laughs> I love I love that. You know, I, I want to go back really quick because um I've only I've been to Cambridge one time and it was it was over 25 years ago. And so I maybe wasn't paying attention like I should have. But if you were going to describe, you, you talked a little bit about it, the pedestrian areas and things, but, I, you know, I, I envision this um, English little village with, and, and I know there are squares everywhere. There's like an Inman Square and there's a Harvard Square and there's a bunch of squares I don't know the names of. Well, how would you, you know, you kind of gave a little description up front, but this is, this is your chance to really tell people, like, why, why Cambridge? Sure. So Cambridge is a wonderful City, it's the left bank, if you will, um, the Charles River to Boston, one of the liberal bastions of the United States. I think maybe only Berkeley might be more liberal than Cambridge. Uh, and it's in the shape of a bow tie, and Harvard Square is at the center of that bow tie, and it's the knot. In fact, Harvard Square is one of five named squares in Cambridge. There's Harvard Square, Central Square, Kendall Square. Inman Square and Porter Square. And what's interesting about the squares is they're not square. <laughs> they have no defined borders. And it's not clear when they start and when they stop. They're intersections that sort of extend in all directions, as things do in the Cambridge Boston Nexus with our cow pasture intersections. So, and then there are 13 named neighborhoods identified by the city of Cambridge. And each has its own distinct personality. So I once upon a time on Google created a map, CambridgeMAMap.com, where you can see those neighborhoods and squares that define Cambridge. So it's difficult in a nutshell to capture Cambridge other than to, to say what's obvious, which is it's home to Harvard and MIT, which are here forever and going to be here forever. And more recently in East Cambridge in the Kendall Square area, the biotech and high-tech communities have taken root. I think Kendall Square is the largest biotech community in the world, and many tech companies have also parked offices there like Google and Microsoft and Twitter and others. So uh, you've got a vital um, university world by Harvard and MIT, and you've got this vital high-tech and biotech community that's in uh, the Kendall Square area. And so obviously what that means is in my 20 years as an agent, the cost of real estate has gotten higher and higher. So, you know, we're at a point now where uh, it's very hard for the city to sustain a diverse economic uh, community because it's gotten so expensive. It's hard for people to afford to live here. Well, Charles, I've had you over the half hour I asked of your time. And so I think you know what's coming because you, you listen to the show. You get to now give the 199th answer to this question. And that is, what one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started? It's a great question. And I think my answer would be give, give, give. And 
let me just sort of give some context to that. I think for me, that notion comes out of Gary Vaynerchuk saying that the secret to life is to give without the expectation of return. And I'd say that that's true if you're a real estate broker or you're an attorney or you're a lender or you're in another profession altogether that has nothing to do with real estate. And I think all too often people are giving to get, right? And it's not an easy thing to give without the expectation of return. Let me give you a story that might bring this into perspective. I have a client that I sold a home to in the year 2001 who's been searching on and off ever since for a new home. And at some point in the last several years, I discovered that she decided to work with another agent. And I didn't take it personally. Uh, I understood that time had passed and she knew this other agent through a social channel that was important to her. And so I continued to send her information on the market and to answer her questions when she reached out to ask me questions about real estate. And it turns out I ran into her this summer at an open house, which it turns out was the house she ended up making an offer on, which was accepted through the other agent. And when we were there together at that home, which I knew I wouldn't be representing her on because she had decided to work with another agent to buy, I gave her my thoughts. She asked me questions about the property. I gave her my answers. And I was happy for her when her offer was accepted through the other agent. And, you know, it's interesting when your mindset is to give, the universe finds a way to give back. And so she contacted me last week and said, now that she had found this new place, the place I had sold her back in 2001, she'd want me to list for her to sell. So, you know, sure, I would have loved to have been her buyer's agent on the new place. But my mindset wasn't that. It was about giving to her to be a meaningful person in her life to answer the questions she had. And so I'm thrilled to be listing her place this fall for north of a million. <laughs> you, you, I think you said it there. The uh, Some of the most important things to do are some of the hardest things to do, right? Listening with intention, giving without expectation. Those are, those are learned skills. Uh, and it's really cool for you to share that. By the way, uh, you did it you gave a different answer that no one's given in the previous 198 replies. So congratulations. <laughs> you know, uh, Katie Lance says it's amazing what happens when you take an interest in other people. And, oh. uh, you know, in closing, I guess I would just say that I think that the secret to success, and this is going to bring it full circle to how I first learned of you, which is through your Joe Rand interview on this podcast. You know, Joe talks about client oriented real estate, what he calls core. and he says a great real estate agent does not pitch himself, rather he or she does a great job. And so for me, doing a great job means being there in some meaningful fashion for the potential buyer or seller that I'm communicating with, who then maybe becomes my client, who then I'm serving, right? It's not about selling myself or pitching my services. It's about commitment to excellence and doing a good job for the person you're connected to who becomes your client. So uh, that means listening. That means going the extra mile. You know, Joe says there's three level of client needs. Completion, that's level one. You get the job done. There's success. That's level two. You got the job done and delivered good results. And then there's level three, Bill. That's delight. It's where you got the job done. You delivered good results and you provided a qualitatively great experience during the process. So, you know, what being on this podcast is about, what 
listening to your podcast is about when I'm not the guest is about that commitment to delight, to providing a qualitatively greater experience, and then making the client's life experience a better one because you're a part of it. Charles, if somebody wants to reach out and talk to you some more, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way to find me is on our primary website, cambridgerealestate.com. I'm on all the social media channels uh, and I've got links to all of them there. So if you wish to find me, reach out via cambridgerealestate.com. Well, this this has been wonderful. Uh, I knew this was going to be a lot of fun, and I, I'm serious. I'm looking. I'll be looking for three movies my wife and I must watch. I'm sure they'll be subtitled. I'm cool with that. Uh, <laughs> and and I can't thank you enough uh, for for sharing your thoughts uh, with with the listeners today. Let's finish on a fun note since you brought up world cinema, and I'm going to recommend to you and to your audience that uh, they look at uh, the series Red, White, and Blue. Those are three French language films. And I forget the French titles. They do have, of course, French titles, but the the titles in, in English are red, white, and blue. Perfect. Thanks, Charles. All the best, Bill. Take care.